Hey, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Human Cogs. We absolutely love diving into these conversations and they always give way more than they take every time. But we can get more of these episodes and stories out to more people like you if you could help us to be found on the pod channels. So the best way for you to do that is to hit subscribe and give us a few stars on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We super appreciate it. And we have stacks more human stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries coming your way very soon. What happens when at age 30, you understand your transgender? This was the question that confronted Dr. Eve Rees, an award-winning author, historian, and regular contributor to ABC Radio and The Conversation, whose life was upended by gender transition in 2018. Then, known as a woman called Anne, Eve was forced to grapple with the knowledge that they were not, in fact, a woman at all. So in this conversation, Eve shares the events that led to their transition, including completing a PhD, ending a long-term relationship with a male, moving cities, and even dabbling in a brief encounter with marijuana one night, which unlocked the human who'd been hiding inside all along. Eve describes the limitless joy that surfaced when the binary confines of society finally gave way to the euphoric possibility of what could come next. Eve also expresses the desire that sits within each of us to be seen for who we are, regardless of the complexities and conflicts that are so very innately human in all of our lives. If there's any part of you that yearns to be, well, more you and less defined by the labels that society constructs for us, we know you will relate to Eve's story. And you'll also applaud this very personal, raw and universal truth of a wise, articulate and curious human who's just trying to be themselves in a world that can make space for them. Here's our chat with Eve. Eve Rees, welcome to Human Cogs. We're really excited today to have a conversation with you as a newly published author and a person in the world who has a really big story in your head and your heart to share with our listeners today. We've got a lot to cover and uncover and discover in today's episode. And I thought it might be good to start by going way back. And if we wind the clock back uh, 25 years or so, um, let's go back and give us the child of seven. Who was Eve then? So Eve was um, not Eve at the age of seven. Eve was Anne or Annie, as I was often known back then. So I was, um, I'm not a woman now, but I was assigned female at birth. So I was brought up as a little girl. And, you know, when we say someone's assigned female at birth, we just mean that, you know, they came out of the womb, they were born, they had a vagina, the doctors said it's a girl and, you know, everyone rolled with that. So at the age of seven, I was a little girl who didn't really think to question the, I, the story I'd been told that I was a little girl. I lived in a world where, you know, being trans wasn't really ever discussed or talked about as a real thing. You know, I was raised in Newcastle in this is sort of in the early mid 90s and you know Newcastle's got great weather great beaches but it was a pretty like conservative and sheltered place back then and you know it wasn't really like there wasn't even really like a gay community or migrant communities or anything like that so I was just living in a pretty sheltered white middle class you know heteronormative world. I really, really uh, idolised my older brother, though. 
um, and I wanted to be exactly like him in in every possible way. I wanted to look like him. I wanted to, you know, listen to the same music, play with the same toys, you know, which in retrospect um, can be seen as some kind of red flags that I was maybe not um, such a kind of straightforward little girl after all. But I was, you know, I was a, the kind of kid who wants to follow the rules to be loved. You know, I think little kids are kind of often smarter than we give them credit for. And they're really good at picking up signals from the world about what you do and don't have to do to be safe and loved. And I think I picked up pretty early on that it was not okay to kind of colour outside the lines of conventional gender. So I didn't, you know, I, I was, you know, the kind of kid who I'd been told I was a girl. So I had long hair, I wore dresses, I played with dolls, but, you know, I think beneath the surface, even at that age, there was a kind of rumbling unease with, with my gender, certainly back then. And, and what do you do with that when you, when you're seven, Eve, you're saying, well, I, I had to just, I, I chose to accept her. I didn't know any, any other way. When did it first dawn on you that you were able to uh, question or challenge, if not publicly in your own mind, that this might not be the story that has simply been assigned to you? It really wasn't until many, many years later. You know, like there are some trans people in the world who they know that they're trans from the age they're seven or five or three years old. And they might not tell people about it because they're afraid. They might not act on it. But I was not in that camp. I did not even have it consciously occur to me at that age that the discomfort I felt in my body was a sign that I was trans. You know, you could say in retrospect that's me being a bit like um, a bit slow off the mark. Um, But I think... You know, when I look back and think about the kinds of culture I was being exposed to at that age, I kind of think it's not that surprising that my brain couldn't even entertain the idea. Like one idea, one text I've been thinking about a lot is the film Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, which came out in 1994 when I was six. And that was, you know, like that was such a big film at the time. You know, I watched it with my family. We watched it at school. It was on TV all the time. And it was kind of heralded as a, you know, wholesome family comedy. But the the, the kind of core idea of that film is that trans people are evil and disgusting. Um, you know, the, it's the lead character is Jim Carrey, who plays a pet detective. But the villain that he uncovers is a trans woman who is doing all these kind of dastardly things and murdering people. So we've got the idea that trans people are bad and sinister. And then also, um, you know, when when it's revealed that this character is a trans woman, everyone in the film is revolted. Like there's mass vomiting. Jim Carrey himself like vomits convulsively into the toilet and there's this long sequence where he's cleaning his teeth to get out this kind of contamination. So we've also got the idea that trans people 
make other people literally ill. So, you know, I think as a six-year-old seeing these images, my brain was just thinking, well, you know, trans people are not even human and I'm human. So I can't even begin to countenance that I might be one of those people. So I'm just kind of going to repress all this like gender unease and unease in my body and just try really, really hard to compensate and play the role of girl and hope that works out for me. Mm. And you talked in your book quite a lot about this this conformity and and the reading the mess backwards. I think is chapter twenty. Uh, I, I love that title uh, that that often retrospection then gives you the chance to make sense of your story and uncouple yourself from being inside it uh, to get that view on it. I'd love to know Eve before we go forward in your teenage years if you had this growing um, unease when your body started changing as a female teenager. How were those years for you? Yeah, that was, I think for me, as is the case for lots and lots of trans kids, puberty was really when the wheels fell off because, you know, little girls' bodies and little boys' bodies are pretty similar. You know, they can get away with acting in similar ways. But then, of course, you know, in puberty, when our secondary sex characteristics develop, that's really when things change. It's, you know, when I started, my breasts developed, I got my period, I started, um, you know, getting hips and curves. And all of a sudden I was confronted with this kind of daily visceral embodied evidence that I was supposedly a woman. And it was frankly pretty hellish. I, um, you know, the kind of dysphoria and discomfort in my gender that I'd been able to repress until that point, it sort of suddenly came rearing out at me. And it was a really, really tough period in my life. Um, I developed quite a serious eating disorder, which, you know, I now know is really common among trans teens because it's sort of this repressed, sorry, this attempt to wind back the clock of puberty and go back to kind of the androgyny of childhood. So, you know, at the time it looked like I was just a typical teenage girl with teenage girl angst trying to be really skinny like, you know, Kira Knightley and Paris Hilton. But what I now understand that it was me trying to repress my femaleness and just, you know, go back to looking like a kind of skinny little boy so I didn't have to confront my gender. And when we have something like anorexia, you lose obviously a lot of weight but also you stop menstruating. So Exactly. It kind of met your needs, I guess. It was really convenient. I know, I know. I loved not menstruating. I um, I had really severe anorexia for a few years as a teenager. But even after that, when I was like back in a so-called healthy weight range, you know, for a long time in my teens and throughout my 20s, I um, was very restrictive in my eating and very compulsively driven to exercise to kind of keep myself from menstruating for most of those that those years I didn't have a period because that's how I liked it. I liked feeling like I could live in my body without having this monthly reminder of my womanness. A lot of people that have eating disorders, even after they've had been in, had treatment and feel that um, perhaps the the level of distress or the, the the loudness of the voices has softened, still live with patterns and questions every mm. day or every week what's your eating disorder voices like now because it's an interesting space to explore that you were linking this very much to your experience your trans experience or curiosity at that time mm. but how does it manifest now yeah that's a great question I mean coming out as trans 
at the age of 30 and, you know, living with that truth as I do now helped enormously, like more than anything, to have a sense of ease in my body, which allowed me to stop fixating on food and exercise. That's been enormously helpful. But I also kind of live with the reality that my disordered eating thoughts will never disappear entirely. I feel like they're so kind of encoded on my brain and in my relationship to food and my body that I'll never just be able to, you know, be completely comfortable um, with food and my body. Because, of course, you know, the same the same impulse still exists, that I still want to be thin to look less womanly. And even though like understanding that impulse and kind of making some peace with my body has kind of quietened those voices, that fundamental drive is still there. Um, And I don't think it will ever really go away. So Mm. I've just kind of tried to make peace with that, but that's just going to be part of my life. And that's a control sort of thing, I suppose, isn't it, where you're, you're in the mess uh, of, of living backwards or forwards. Um, you came out um, about three years ago, um, age 30, and um, in the lead up to that, can we unpack a little bit what the sort of mess I imagine of those years in leading up to from being Anne to Eve? Yeah, yeah. It was so... You know, in my late 20s, which I think is often a period where people are sort of reevaluating their identity and their adult life so far, for me that coincided with a kind of cultural shift that's often called the trans tipping point. So about like 2014, 2015, you know, we see a really sudden change in how trans people are represented in the media. You know, suddenly that kind of Ace Ventura model of trans people are freakish and villainous, that really starts to disappear. And we see, you know, actual trans people being, you know, actors on screen, you know, people like Laverne Cox in Orange is the New Black, uh, TV shows like Transparent, films like The Danish Girl, they suddenly start to proliferate and give like, you know, positive, humane um, trans representation. And at the time I um, was in my late 20s, I'd just finished my PhD, I'd moved cities, I'd ended a long-term relationship. So I was sort of generally in a period of flux and I'd found myself so drawn to this trans culture. And um, I kept reading and hearing these accounts of gender dysphoria and thinking again and again, oh, oh, that that kind of sounds like how I feel like living in my body. Because at that point, I think I'd always thought the discomfort of being my body was just what it meant to be a woman in a sexist world or, you know, under patriarchy, that all women just felt really awful in their bodies and that's just how it was and you had to deal with it. But hearing these accounts of gender dysphoria and learning this new language about gender dysphoria, I was like, ah, what I'm hearing, what I'm feeling is very very, you know, identical to what I'm hearing described. This is really me. I was seeing myself in these stories. So there was a kind of building recognition over a number of years, um, which kind of all came to a head in, yeah, in 2018 when I was 30 years old. I was in Canada for a work conference and I sort of tacked on a bit of a holiday to the end of the conference by myself. So I was in in Victoria, which is the capital of British Columbia. It's an absolutely stunning part of the world. 
and they just legalized marijuana, which is not something I normally dabble in at, at home, but I thought, you know, when in Rome, I'm on holidays, let's give it a go. So I bought some um, THC tablets, had a nice night. And the next morning I woke up really early with this kind of sentence just sort of manifesting in my mind, which was, you know, you're not really a woman wearing women's clothes is drag. And it was just so kind of unambiguous and concrete in my mind at that moment. And I'm not, you know, I'm not at all a religious person, but it kind of felt as profound as a sort of message from God or something like that. And that was it. Like in that moment, I just knew and, um, you know, it was a day of enormous joy and euphoria really because I'd finally felt like I'd finally cracked the code on my gender trouble and my body trouble. I finally understood what was going on and I and I had a way forward. I wasn't stuck in this mess anymore. I could do things to affirm my gender socially and medically and I could find a community of people like me. Mm. There's, there's a lot of research, um, Eve, with using um, psilocybin or mushrooms or other mm. mind-altering substances to unlock people from, you know, from trauma or, or, or their stories. To what extent do you attribute the fact that, you know, you hadn't used <laughs> dope before, you know, that, that maybe yeah. that was the thing that enabled you to unlock what was in in your box all along, excuse, I mean, not box, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's entirely possible. It was a strong factor. I mean, I think, you know, that those drugs combined with being on holidays, you know, alone. So I just generally had a lot of mental space to kind of explore ideas um, and meet new uh, revelations. But I really, yeah, I do think the way in which the drugs altered my brain chemistry probably did kind of tip me over the edge and this knowledge that had been simmering beneath the surface could finally kind of crack through. Yeah, and you had space for that. But where you say you had this sentence that came to you you know, that, mm. that you are not a woman. But in your book, you write quite a lot about um, the sort of binarism of the gender spectrum, you know, your woman or your man or yeah. male or female. In the moment that you recognise yourself as not woman in its binarism, was, a, was there a recognition of another or an other that was clear yeah. to you? That's a great question. No, like not at that point. Um, so I do have this incredibly unambiguous, solid knowledge that I wasn't a woman. But at that moment, I didn't quite know what I was. Um, you know, I thought, am I maybe a trans man? You know, do I want to transition and live in the world as a man? Or am I a non-binary person? Or am I something else entirely? And, you know, in a way, the last three years since that day in 2018 have kind of been the process of figuring that out. And, you know, what I would say today is that I'm a, a non-binary, transmasculine person. I'm not a man. And I, you know, and I have concerns about the way in which trans people, like other people, are kind of lumped into a binary framework that we're kind of expected to identify as men or women and nothing else. But, yeah, it was, you know, at the, on that initial day, I didn't know at that point, and it was been quite a journey to get here. Mm. You also said when we spoke last time, Eve, my mission is to destigmatize and um, sort of depathologize trans identity um, and the medicalization of the label. Mm. Um, to talk to us a little bit more about that there. Yeah, so there's a few things going on with that um, with that idea. I mean, 
the idea, like the kind of transphobic idea of transness that, you know, was very pervasive in culture till really recently, you know, in that, that Ace Ventura model and that still exists today to some extent, that negative view comes in large part from the medical idea that being trans is a sickness, that it's a kind of psychiatric disorder, that, you know, it's a kind of delusion and that, you know, should um, be treated rather, you know, with various, you know, in the past forms of aversion therapy and things like that, rather than, you know, affirming the trans person's gender. Now, you know, for a very long time, being trans was listed as a psychiatric disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic or Statistical Manual, which is sort of, you know, the encyclopedia for um, mental disorders. That that kind of characterization has evolved significantly over the years where trans being trans itself is no longer described as a mental disorder. But having gender dysphoria, which is the discomfort that trans people often feel in their body and their genders, is still listed as a disorder in the DSM. So in a way, practically not that much has changed. You know, trans people are still kind of categorised in the framework of psychiatric distress and mental ill health. And that really troubles me. It really troubles a lot of trans people because it still creates this idea that we are fundamentally deviant and wrong and disturbed in our minds. So it still, you know, continues on this really negative um, stereotyping. And it also has practical effects in the sense that we need to go through all this medical gatekeeping to access gender-affirming treatment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to be kind of formally diagnosed as trans with gender dysphoria um, to get um, to get the treatment that I need. And I found that process, you know, very um, humiliating and dehumanising. You also share, that just sounds like a, such a painful experience and, and really deep trauma that I don't know how you've, well, how do you, how do you move through that? The trauma of being kind of pathologised like that. Yes, to be yeah. And the humiliation that you speak of, I can feel it very deeply within you as you as you share that. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I think I'm still working through those emotions, to be honest, because prior to being, you know, coming out as trans, I had lived such a privileged life. You know, I'm white, I'm, you know, always been economically comfortable, I'm highly educated, I've got the status of, you know, being an academic. So, you know, even though I'd experienced misogyny, um, my life had been pretty, pretty amazing in many ways. So to be suddenly, you know, identified as trans and be pathologised in that way was actually just such a shock to the system because I was used to the world treating me so well. And I was just incredibly indignant that I, um, you know, in my mind, I'm the same person, just identifying slightly differently. But suddenly I'm told I can't know my own mind and I um, have to go through all these really demeaning, humiliating procedures just to get basic medical health care. So I think for me um, that humiliation has manifested as a lot of anger, really, to be honest, a lot of anger at the way in which trans identity is currently recognised under law and medicine in Australia and around the world. 
And that anger really fuels a lot of my trans advocacy. I mean, that's a big part of the reason why I wrote my book, because I wanted to, you know, I I suppose I wanted to make the point that even really privileged trans people like me, you know, we still we still have a rough time. Like there are still so many obstacles to getting the healthcare we need. And it's just, it's not good enough. Mm. In your book on page 231. I've got a question as well. Um, you talk, just, just tapping into what you're talking about there. Mm. Um, you say my public platform, such as it is, rests on my being palatable. I am an out and proud trans person to be sure, but I'm also white, cis-passing, affluent and able-bodied. I have a PhD. I'm employed by a university. I conform to the norms of civility expected by white elites. I smile. I make pleasantries. My appearance doesn't rock the boat. Your privilege and your position as a white person in the world Mm. and anyone who's born to privilege, you know, there there is that first. Um, How how has that affected? It sounds like in there you're saying that uh, other people, trans people who might be more overt, um, it's a different path, it's a different story for them that you can assimilate, if you like, in a way that's more palatable. Yeah, that's definitely correct. I can assimilate. That's a really complicated thing for me to negotiate because being able to assimilate and enter lots of different spaces where powerful people exist and to have a platform to speak on podcasts, to speak on radio, to have a book published you know, I suppose in one way I see that as as a kind of, as a Trojan horse type experience that I can be this kind of trans outsider who uses my privilege to kind of go inside the citadel of the cis majority and change things from within. And I, I think that is true. But I suppose it's also the case that, you know, me being here means that other more marginalised trans people are not here, that there's often only like one trans person in a space and I'm conscious that my my message and my politics are not as radical um, as other trans people who have different life experiences. And maybe in some circumstances it's it's actually important for a more marginalised, more radical trans person to speak, that they, that, you know, they have a message that needs to be heard more. So... I'm, you know, I'm very committed to using the power and the platform I have to do good work, but I'm also very conscious that I do not speak for majority trans experience and that I am not by any means the only voice or the main voice that needs to be heard. And I really am committed to making space for other people as well. Yeah. So, I mean, hearing you say that, I think it's very clear you said, do they need it more than me? It's it's not more or less, it's and, isn't it? It's everything. Yeah. And you articulate so beautifully in the book that my experience with um, trans is my experience. It's not anyone's. Mm. And you invite and explore other people's experiences too. I was really fascinated very, in, in your author's notes at the beginning of the book, you make reference to um, the transgender community or it's not a community, I guess it's a, a concept, if you like, for first people or Indigenous people in Australia. And you say, I thank them for opening my eyes to the possibilities of doing gender outside the binary enforced alongside European colonisation. So what, what is the Indigenous belief around the transgender construct that's obviously very different to the Western world? Conservative figures often like to suggest that being trans and particularly non-binary kind of trans identities, this idea of a third gender, it's often suggested that these are like new, overly woke 
um, kind of internet-born identities when, I mean, the reality um, couldn't be more different. There is so much evidence that Indigenous cultures all around the world, including in Australia, recognise diverse genders, um, genders that aren't man or woman in a really straightforward way. Now, it's important to stress that that's not the same as the modern like Western concept of trans. Um, you know, it's it would be incorrect to say that, you know, First Nations people in Australia, you know, prior to colonisation had, had an understanding of trans like we think of it today because they're not the same, they're culturally different. But the point that is, you know, um, key to stress is that humankind around the world have always recognised a multiplicity of genders. You know, it's really the idea that there's only two genders. That's the exception to the rule rather than the rule. So many cultures recognised uh, many, many um, forms of gender expression. You know, for example, in um, North America or what's, you know, known by First Nations people there as Turtle Island, there's research that suggests that 168 language groups have words for a gender that isn't man or woman. And, you know, and there's a similar story to be told in Australia. I mean, of course, you know, as with many aspects of First Nations culture, because of colonisation, you know, evidence has been destroyed, knowledge has been lost. But it is also very clear that uh, First Nations people recognise um, a kind of transness that is often um, described as brother boy and sister girl. They're often the words that get used to describe um, trans people who are from First Nations communities. And even though those words brother boy and sister girl, they sound fairly binary, like they sound like, you know, the kind of equivalent of trans man or trans woman, um, what I've been told by First Nations people is that those concepts, brother, boy and sister girl, are actually very complex and fluid and are kind of more similar to sort of a non-binary gender queer understanding of gender, that they can contain multitudes of gender expression. Um, and, yeah, so we know that, that there's a strong history of that in Australia and throughout the Pacific, throughout Asia, so many parts of the world. You know, even in Europe, there's this amazing story that came out of Finland just this year where the remains um, of a Finnish person were uncovered. This is from a, thousand, a corpse from a 1,000 years ago. And archaeologists were trying to determine the gender of this person. And they concluded that this was probably a non-binary corpse because the kind of the, the physical artefacts that had been buried alongside the corpse were kind of a mix of feminine and masculine objects. And there was also evidence from the skeleton that this was a kind of gender ambiguous person. So they've su suggested that this was obviously a very high status person in Finland and that they were probably non-binary. So it's another piece of evidence to suggest that you know, even though today we kind of look down on non-binary and trans people in many cultures over time and place, they existed and that they were often quite revered, quite mm. high-status humans within the community. Or, or suppressed or repressed if you look at homosexuality, which was illegal and, and still is in some places around the world. So it's we've obviously come a long way with, with coming out uh, and enabling that in society. Um, as you were talking about the Indigenous um sister girl and, and, and brother boy. I know in Samoa there's a place where, and you probably know this as well because you've deeply researched, uh, where we have thousands of boys raised as girls 
Um, and it, it's it's not widely known and it's it's not really considered a third gender in and of itself, but they're called farfain, or I'm not I'm pronouncing it correctly, but they're men who are raised as females and identify with that gender. And they mostly have relationships with heterosexual men, but are generally not gay. And so you've got this very fluid, you know, uh, confluence of things there. There's the gender and then there's the sexuality. Um, and I think those things can often become very um, confusing and conflated in the, you know, the, the, the tangle and the mess of, of binarism, but also trying to kind of slice people across the spectrum. In your case, are you, did you have relationships with, with males or females before you transitioned? So before I transitioned, I um, had largely had relationships with men. So for most of my kind of teens and early 20s when I was, you know, trying really, really hard to live up to the role as woman, I, you know, I identified as a heterosexual woman and I had several long-term relationships with men. In my late 20s when I kind of ended the long-term relationship that kind of prompted this period of soul-searching, you know, I had this kind of inkling that I wasn't quite straight but I suppose because at that point I wasn't ready to you know fully confront my transness I initially started to identify as a queer woman or as a lesbian and I went through a period of dating women but you know that didn't really sit for me quite right either because I think you know I'd done that mistake that as you've said um, Madeline so often happens of kind of conflating sexuality and gender and I'd been in this relationship as, you know, as a woman with a man. And I knew that didn't work. I knew that didn't feel quite right, even though I loved this man very much. So I kind of thought, well, if I don't want to be with a man as a woman, I must want to be in a relationship with women. When what I later realised, the problem wasn't who I was in a relationship with. It was who I was in a relationship as. The problem was that I was, you know, going to bed with people as a woman. So the answer wasn't to kind of switch out male romantic sexual and, you know, romantic partner for a woman. It was to change my own gender identity and expression. Does that include then now? Sorry, that is so good because you could translate that sentiment to so many other parts of life in that you turned the attention and the responsibility and the agency and the exploration to self instead of outwardly expecting others to to be or solve or fix or blame. There's something very powerful in that story beyond the framework in which you tell it, I think. Well, the most important relationship is a relationship we have with ourselves, isn't it? it from that point of view, do you, so you're in your body now transitioned, mm. do you physically... Are you undergoing physical transition as well? Is that something that is on your... Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so, you know, once I kind of figured out that I wasn't a trans man, um, I had this kind of big, big question of how do I live in a non-binary body? Because, of course, our world still wants to categorise everyone as a man or a woman. And in a world that only sees two genders, how do I express a third gender and you know all non-binary people grapple with this question and there's no right answer like some you know a lot of non-binary people don't medically transition at all you know they just tell the world they're non-binary and go on and you know they might change their clothes a bit they might start using they them pronouns but that's it I kind of went that path for a while but I was really drawn to 
you know, taking testosterone, just taking, you know, gender-affirming HRT and having uh, top surgery, which is essentially getting, you know, your breasts removed and getting a kind of masculine chest because I have a lot of gender dysphoria around my breasts. And I really, for a long time, I kind of hesitated on the brink of medical transition because I thought, you know, in my current body, the world sees me as a woman and that's intolerable. Like I find that so distressing. But if I start taking male hormones, if I go on testosterone, if I get my breasts removed, will the world then just start deeming me as a man? And will that be just as bad? You know, there's this sort of, you know, ongoing question of how do you get to be seen as who you are in the middle? And so I suppose, you know, I mean, that's that's not a closed issue for me. I think I'll live with that for the rest of my life. But my my solution at the moment is that I've been on low-dose testosterone for about seven months. So that's, you know, a way to, you know, slightly masculinise my appearance, become a bit more androgynous but without going, you know, full kind of Hulk man. And I'm also I'm booked in to have top surgery next month or in November um, 2021. And I just really hope that goes ahead because there's a huge, huge uh, kind of wait list to get top surgery in Australia or any kind of gender affirming surgery because there's so few surgeons who do the work. So it's taken me, you know, well over 12 months to, you know, have the surgery. And now, you know, with um, kind of a possible surge in COVID hospitalizations, you know, there's a concern that my surgery will be amongst the elective surgeries that are postponed. So that's that's a bit of a source of anxiety for me at the moment, but fingers crossed that still goes ahead because um, for the past few years, I've been wearing a chest binder, which is a kind of corset type device to repress, to kind of flatten my breasts and give me a flat chest. And, you know, I choose to wear that because it makes me feel better in my body on a day-to-day basis, but it's not great for my body either. Like it causes a lot of physical pain and discomfort. It's very hot in summer. So I'm very, very excited to no longer have to wear my binder every day and to just be able to, you know, live in the world with a flat chest. Uh, yeah, we hope that for you as well, Eve. You made mention then of the power of pronouns and language in your mm. What is it that you would like listeners and readers of your book to understand about the power of pronouns and the languages that we used? I think pronouns are quite misunderstood and often trivialised. So I use they, them pronouns and, you know, I recognise that they're unfamiliar for a lot of people. It can be a period of adjustment to changing the way that we refer to people But, you know, I want to stress that respecting someone's pronouns and particularly people who use they, them pronouns is hugely, hugely important. It can seem like a small deal because they're just little words. You know, it's easy to say, oh, it doesn't really matter. But it does matter because it's communicating how someone sees me. If someone, you know, who knows that I use they, them pronouns continues to refer to me as she or her, what they're telling me is that my trans identity is not real, that they refuse to see it, that I'm still a woman in their eyes and that my self-knowledge is null and void. And that's really insulting and dehumanising and just plain rude, really. So, you know, respecting someone's pronouns is such a small way to say to them, I see you, I respect you, I hear you, 
and you matter to me as a fellow human being with dignity. Mm. Mm. You, you wrote in your book, Eve, um, about th- this power of pronouns and that when you received your PhD, you then were able to take on the doctor honorific. Um, yeah. And, and you could cast off those feminised monikers. Um, how, how did you navigate talking to your, your friends or family or, or your colleagues when you were transitioning and you wanted to be known as, as, as another name and by another pronoun? Yeah, it's such a messy process. You know, no one, there's no rule book for how you change your name and your pronouns. And what I discovered is that you have to come out again and again and again and again and just tell so many people, which is both kind of exhausting and uh, terrifying and often painful, but also kind of beautiful often because being vulnerable with another person who, you know, might be a colleague or, you know, like a receptionist, someone you don't know, but having to kind of say, like, I'm not, I'm not Anne, I'm not my old name anymore, I'm Eve. It creates this kind of really unusual, yeah, moment of intimacy and vulnerability between two humans which can go really badly but often goes really beautifully and can be an affirming experience. And I was actually blown away by how well my colleagues in particular took it. You know, I was I was pretty anxious about transitioning at work because I had, you know, I'd been working as a historian my day job for about 10 years. I had a, you know, I had a national profile. I went to conferences and I'd published under Anne. And I just thought it could be really awkward and painful and people would be bad at it. But no, like my colleagues, you know, they didn't make a big deal of it. But, um, you know, the second I told them in an email or they saw on Twitter or something like that, that I was Eve now, they just immediately um, took that on board. And it was it was really quite a profound um, and moving experience to feel so seen by my professional community. Though, you know, I mean, there were also many, many kind of comic, awkward moments where, you know, I existed in this kind of awkward space where all my legal ID was still Anne and, you know, but I was going by the name Eve. So, you know, I had terrible moments like I, you know, I bought a a new wallet as a kind of present to myself to celebrate my transition and I was was at work when the package was delivered so I got a kind of a... Oz post slipped, you know, addressed to Eve Rees. And then I have to go to the to the post office to pick it up. But I don't have any ID describing me as as Eve. I'm all Anne. And, you know, and that that just things like that kept showing up again and again, where I'm kind of living two lives. I'm legally Anne, but I'm day-to-day life, I'm Eve. And yeah, it's 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 been a kind of tricky thing to navigate over the last few years. I wonder if many of us have some inkling of that in different ways, maybe not through um, gender-related constructs, but this idea that a part of me feels this and yet a part of me feels that. There's often an internal conflict between different parts of us in different domains of our life. I think that's a really, really great point that I think, you know, none of us has a kind of single identity that we mm. perform in all all four or all aspects of our life. Um, you know, we're all a different self at work versus home versus, you know, with your friends. And so in a way, like having to be kind of Eve and Anne in some contexts just actually felt like an extension of that multiple selfhood that we all live with. 
And, you know, even though it was stressful, there's also kind of playful aspects to it. Like it's kind of fun to, in in a weird way, to be able to slip between multiple identities and to kind of elude being pinned down and known as one single thing. Mm. I, I, I Sometimes I feel like a bit of a spy with multiple kind of persona that I'm, I'm inhabiting, which well, is really fun. You've got, you know, multiple lenses and so much lived experience. Uh, when we spoke last time, um, you said we are messy ordinary humans like everyone else. And yes, we might have an interesting perspective the way we show up, but we're just people, Mm. you and I. And I want to challenge the boxes and the binaries so that we will all be freer and so that no one is forced to live in a box and we can each express and identify our humanity in any way we want. And I think that's beautiful. It's, you know, it's it's a big space that's been created there um, for us all to kind of throw off the um, expectations we have about how society sees us and instead see ourselves for who we are. And I think that's um, incredible what you've done, Eve, to uh, move through your own story but have so much generosity and so much warmth and perspective to share with other people. We um, will certainly would love our listeners to get listeners to get their hands on your book, All About Eve, which is out at the moment, available from Ellen and Unwin, I imagine, in all good bookstores. Uh, or online. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes. We'd love to end these chats with incredible humans like you who have shared so deeply um, by asking the same question. And that is, when you think about the tumble of life and and the mess of it all, who do you think is doing human really well? Ah, that's a big question. I think I'm going to be really, really super corny and say my (laughs) mum. Because she has just blown me away like the last few years as she's gone on this like trans journey with me you know as I write in my book she um was so freaked out when I first came out as trans because she was afraid for me I think she just didn't know a lot about being trans she'd internalized all the negativity about it and she just did not want a bar of it but um she has learned so much, changed her thinking so much. And this is, you know, this is a woman, a retired woman in her 60s who didn't really know any trans people or almost any queer people before me. But she's just um, been so open-minded in a way that gives me faith for all humans that we have capacity to learn and change and grow, even very at very advanced phases of our life. You know, I think sometimes we think that once people retire, they just kind of, you know, slide slide down the hill towards death and, you know, there's no more personal evolution for them in store. But she's really, I suppose, excited me about the possibility of evolving and growing at every age. And, you know, her love and support has been such a kind of foundation on which everything I do has been possible. So um, she really inspires me every single day and I think she humans very, very well. Mm. Thank you so much, Eve, for sharing. It's just a snapshot, but I know there'll be listeners who'll be thinking, I want to know more about your story and they'll find that in your book and in a lot of your written work as well. And one of the things we haven't had time to discuss today, but is your life as a historian. And I'm Mm. sure there's parts of um, your own personal story that have drawn you to that kind of work, but we won't be unpacking that today. So thank you again for joining us on Human Cogs and sharing so much of yourself. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delightful conversation. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. 
We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 